Well, good morning. It's a very good morning. Another beautiful fall day. And as I've said before, I love this time of year. It's my favorite, my favorite season. And here, down here in Georgia, unlike up north in the hinterland, uh, we get a real fall. We get three months of fall, and this year has just been absolutely phenomenal. Before we get into our passage this morning, let me do just a little bit of a, a review of where we've been the last three or four weeks. We're in Luke, and we're at the end of Luke, and we're at the end of what's commonly referred to as Passion Week, the last days that Jesus was here on earth before he was crucified. And uh, if you think back, back to chapter 21, uh, we saw Jesus leaving the temple for the last time, and he's with his disciples, and he starts talking about future things. And he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and then his second coming. And then in chapter 22, we heard Brian preach, and he does what's called the Last Supper. They're in an upper room, and... He is instituting what we would call the new covenant. Very personal meal that he had with his disciples. And uh, I, I've always been amazed. John probably has the most written about that particular event. And he's got like five chapters that is just loaded and for the last week, every day, I've been going through those five chapters, and uh, it's just amazing. Then we heard after that from James on a passage regarding Jesus' prediction that Peter would deny his master three times. But he also predicted that Peter would return to strengthen his brothers, and that occurred after some argument and discussion by the disciples, who's, who's the greatest. And then after that, we see the disciples go across, with Jesus go across the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives, and they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we hear from Doug last week about Jesus' prayer to the Father. And Jesus was telling the disciples they need to pray so that they would not enter into temptation. And Doug exhorted us regarding the importance of prayer and the trials that we have as believers. Now, as Jesus was exhorting them, a crowd comes headed by Judas, and we read about the betrayal of Jesus. That's our passage this morning. And then after that, we're going to read a passage about 
Peter denying his master. But before we do that, let me, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, uh, we come with such thankful and joyous hearts because of our Savior, Jesus. You as our Father and your Spirit as our encourager. Father, we pray this morning that the Spirit would take the words that we hear and apply them in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives, and that your word would have its desired effect. So help me, help me as I preach through this passage to help affect that, to be used by you to do that very thing. We pray for your glory and our Savior's sake. Amen. All right, two parts. Part one, and there's, a, there's some handouts in the back. If they're all gone, we could make some more copies. Um, two parts. The first part is going to be about the betrayal of Jesus by one of the disciples, Judas. The second part is Peter and his denials, that very thing that Jesus had predicted. So let's look at part one, Luke 22, verses 47 through 53. Listen closely. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading the way for them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded and said, Stop. No more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a man inciting a revolt? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Let's break this down. Now, I, one of the things that, uh, if you get time this week, I would recommend you go into all the gospel accounts, all four of them, talk about this. And some of them have more information than others. And when you take all four of them and you lay them next to each other, you really get a really interesting and more fulfilling picture. One of those is John. John does not describe the betrayal by a kiss, but he gives us more detail regarding the makeup of who is this crowd. He says in John 18, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort 
and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, this cohort is like 600 Roman soldiers. All right? This is a lot of people. So you have this group of Roman, large group, whatever it may have been, of Roman soldiers plus officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they're coming, led by Judas, by Judas, and, and they're commanded to pick up, quote, this, I guess they considered him an insurrectionist from a secular point of view, who claimed to be some kind of a, a king. Typically, the troops were stationed in the fortress of Antonia, and they're usually there at this time of year because of the Jewish feasts. So they're here to help maintain order. Normally, they're up in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, the provincial capital. The presence of such a large group of armed soldiers shows how little Judas really knew about the Lord Jesus. You know, you have to wonder, was Judas thinking, well, Jesus might try and run away or perhaps hide somewhere? Or did he think Jesus and the disciples were going to resist arrest? He enlisted a lot of help to go get Jesus. One commentator said, perhaps he feared Jesus might perform a miracle. But even if he did... <laughs> What can a group of armed men do against the power of an almighty God? And he has seen and witnessed that power. Judas was deceitful. He was a liar, just like Satan who entered into him. And this kiss, which is generally uh, a form of uh, respect and greeting, was extremely deceitful. John goes on, and in 18, 4 through 9, he says the following. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go on their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those you have given me, I lost not one. That was in his prayer to the Father. Uh, it's just a huge demonstration of power, which kind of really confuses me. Because if I was in that group, and I fell backwards when he spoke, and all 600 of us fell backward because of the power of his word, you think I would pause and decide, I don't know if this is the right thing to do. That isn't what happened. Again, 
and we're going to see this a number of times, we're watching the sovereignty of God unfold. Jesus will go to the cross. Now the next thing that happens is they're coming to take Jesus. The disciples remember and apparently misunderstood the words that we heard a couple of weeks ago about the swords that they had. So they asked him, is, is this the time to make use of our two swords? Now think about it. There's, a, there's 11 disciples, two swords, and Jesus. And there is maybe as many as 600 plus people. And they're going to try and do something about it. And without even waiting for an answer, Peter rushed ahead and he attacks a man. And in John, we know the name of the man. It was a guy by the name of Malchus, who was the slave of the high priest, or servant to the high priest. He draws his sword, he strucks the high priest's slave, and he cuts off his right ear. Now, I don't know what Peter was going to think he was going to do. Maybe he thought he was going to behead him. I don't know. But he was probably going to try and kill him. Why did Peter do this? Well, perhaps he felt he had to back up the boastful words he had in the upper room. And then again, he was boasting on the way to the garden, according to Matthew. Listen to what Warren Wiersbe says about this. He says, Peter had been sleeping when he should have been praying, talking when he should have been listening, boasting when he should have been fearing, and now he's fighting when he should have been surrendering. That's our Peter. Well, guess what? We're all a lot like Peter. In a way, he's one of my favorite guys in Scripture because he's so real. But Peter made a number of serious mistakes when he did this. To begin with, Peter is fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapons. You get that? Peter's fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapons. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. They cannot be defeated with ordinary weapons. And we should recall Ephesians chapter 6. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers and the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of times I have trouble stopping the kind of anger that I feel about something at times and realizing the battle is not against these people. The battle is against the spiritual forces that are affecting these people. But Peter also revealed the wrong attitude. 
While Jesus was surrendering, Peter was busy declaring war, and he was depending on what you might call the arm of flesh. His approach to the situation was not at all Christ-like, and as if he had never heard Christ talk and say what he said, Timothy, to Timothy, reminds us in 2.24, he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, skillful in teaching, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Jesus, just like John said, he loved them to the end. And he, unlike Peter, he acts in grace. When the others are acting in malice, he's acting in grace. He showed grace to Malchus, the lowly slave, by healing his ear. He showed grace to Peter by rebuking his presumptuous sin and repairing the damage he had done. If he hadn't done that, consider Peter might have been a fourth cross the next day because he would have been arrested. And then he demonstrated grace to the whole world by willingly yielding himself to the mob and going to Calvary. And we're going to see this a number of times as we go along here, he is yielding. He's not fighting. He's not resisting. And the passage that Dave read this morning in First Peter was very appropriate to this. He didn't come to judge, but to save. Just like it says in John 3. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. That was in the discussion with Nicodemus in John 3. I often wondered about, about that passage, but it has become more and more clear, especially studying this passage, how much Jesus, although he could have, did not judge, he yielded. Each of us must decide whether we're going to go through life pretending like Judas, or fighting like Peter, or yielding to God's perfect will like Jesus. Will it be the kiss, the sword, or the cup? That's our challenge. Daryl Box says, when Luke calls the moment of Jesus' arrest a time when darkness reigns, he's noting that though his death has been ordained, it is not just. To reject Jesus and his claims is to side with those who arrest him. Since their premise is that Jesus is not who he claims to be, thus as this passion account proceeds, the constant question is, 
Which side represents God? Luke asks the reader, you and me, to ponder the question and respond, not just with an intellectual choice, but with a decision to embrace the forgiveness and blessing Jesus offers those who recognize him through faith. There's something in Jesus' response and the absence of violence that communicates a sense of confidence in God's sovereignty. He renounces, Jesus renounces the use of force. Defense comes through the injustice of his suffering, not through the sword. Isn't that interesting? Now, there is a day coming when that's going to change, when Jesus comes the second time. But for now, our call as disciples and believers is to share the word, love our neighbor, and work for the unity of the saints. The early church in Acts never took up arms against its opponents. There's a subtle strength in facing persecution, as Jesus did, passively, resting in the active defense of his God. Sometimes we get to see that a little bit in our own culture when we, when we see how people take a similar approach to ethical issues in the public square. Jesus' non-retaliatory response gives us a challenging example as disciples what to do when we're unfairly treated. Jesus practiced what he preached. Remember what he said in Luke 6. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Now, oh, by the way, as Dave was talking about, today is prayer day for the persecuted church. Voice of the Martyrs has a magazine that comes out. I think it's like once a month. And the stories in there sometimes are absolutely fascinating and they they reflect this very same thing when you watch how some of these believers who are persecuted how they respond to the persecution and they live out this passage and I have to ask myself so what would I really do if I really really got persecuted, would I be able to do that? Or would I strike out in anger? We should learn a couple of things here in this passage. That it's much easier to fight a little for Christ than it is to endure hardness and go to prison and death for his sake. We just read where when the Lord's enemies drew near to capture him, Peter struck the servant. 
Yet the zeal of Peter was very short-lived. His courage soon died away. Fear of man overcame him. The disciple who was so ready to fight with the sword had actually forsaken his master and fled. One of the lessons in front of us here is deeply instructive. To suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively. To sit still and endure calmly is far more hard than to stir about and take part in the battle. J.C. Ryle says, Crusaders will always be found more numerous than martyrs. The passive graces of religion are far more rare and precious than the active graces. Another thing we should learn is that the time during which evil is permitted is to triumph is fixed and limited by God. And we began to get a glimpse of this when we heard James talking about God's sovereignty in everything that's happening. The passage says, Jesus said, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. We need to be reminded the sovereignty of God over everything done upon earth is absolute and complete. The hands of the wicked are bound until he allows them to work. They can do nothing without his permission. But this is not all. The hands of the wicked cannot stir one moment before God allows them to begin and cannot stir one moment after God commands them to stop. The worst of Satan's instruments are working in chains. Remember Job. The devil could not touch Job's property or person until God allowed him. But also remember, he could not prevent Job's prosperity returning when God's designs on Job were accomplished. Let's take comfort in the words of our Lord and looking forward to our own future lives. If we're followers of Christ, we will have our hour of trial. But we can rest assured the darkness won't last one moment longer than God sees fit for us. In his good time, it will all vanish away. Part two the arrest and Jesus taken away. And now we're going to read about Peter's denials. Starts in verse 54. Now they arrested him and led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a slave woman, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and staring at him, said, This man was with him as well. But he denied it, saying, I do not know him, woman. And a little later, another person saw him and said, You are one of them too. 
But Peter said, man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, some other man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And then the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. On the handout, there's a picture, and I just want to reference it for a minute to describe a little bit of the geography with regards to what's taking place now and will also take place in a couple of sermons after this. And if you start on the upper right-hand side of that picture, you see the Garden of Gethsemane, number one. And that's where we just left, the passage we just left. And now Jesus is arrested, and if you follow the line down to number two, <laughs> they take him down to the palace of the high priest. And then three, four, and five are going to be sermons over the next couple of weeks. And that number two, the palace of the high priest, actually has two of the six trials that are going to take place. On us and Caiaphas. The six trials are going to consist of three religious trials and three civil trials. Annas, which is talked about only in the Gospel of John, was the father-in-law, a former high priest, and so he retains the title of Caiaphas, who is the current high priest. And it's thought that they're both living, because they're related, in the same housing, if you will, two living areas, and in between those two living areas is a courtyard. All right? So the first thing that happens after Jesus is arrested, he gets taken to Anas, who questions him, and then he sends them off over to Caiaphas. And it was during the, or during or just before the second trial that Peter was in the courtyard. And this is where he denied Jesus, his master, three times. So we would ask, so how, how did that happen? <clears throat> well, to begin with, Peter did not take the Lord's warnings seriously nor did he watch and pray as Jesus had instructed him to do in the garden. For all his courage and zeal, Peter was not, not prepared at all for Satan's attack. Peter and John had followed the mob and gained entrance into this courtyard of Caiaphas' house. It was a cold night, and Peter first stood by the fire and then sat down with the servants and the officers, sitting there in enemy territory. He was an easy target. 
While he was thinking only of his comfort, his master was being abused by the soldiers. And then it unfolds. First, one of the side priest's servant girls challenges Peter. She accused him of being with Jesus and being one of his disciples. And Peter lied. He says, woman, I am not one of his disciples. I don't know him and I don't know what you're talking about. He apparently left the fire and went out to the porch and the cock crowed for the first time. If you read the Mark account, there's actually two times that a cock crows. This in itself should have been a warning for him to get out, but he lingered. Peter couldn't escape notice, and so then you get the second time. She says to the bystander, somebody says to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. He's one of them. And for a second time, Peter lies. I am not. I don't know the man. The bystanders were not convinced, especially one of Malchus's, the slave whose ear got cut off. One of his relatives showed up and asked, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And others joined and said, surely you are one of them because the way you talk gives away who you are. You talk like a Galilean. Apparently they had a very distinctive dialect. And at this point, Peter uses an oath and says, I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and it was then that the cock crowed a second time and the Lord's prediction was fulfilled. At that moment, Jesus is going through the courtyard from trial to trial, and he turns and looks at Peter, and his look broke Peter's heart. Mm. That would be just horrible. Now, I don't, doesn't say exactly what the look consisted of. It just says, he looked straight at Peter, and Peter knew right away. He slips out and went off and wept bitterly. It's to Peter's credit that all the Lord had to do was look at him to bring him to the place of repentance. Now, again, it doesn't say what Jesus' look really consisted of. I don't think it was anger. I think it was probably sorrow mixed with love. And Peter knew that. But the key part of the phrase is that Peter remembered what God had said. He remembered God's word. Each of the characters here reveals something. The failure of Peter stands in stark contrast to the nerve of Jesus. The disciple fails because peer pressure of the world and the threat of, the, of death are too great for him. The soldiers show how some in the world do not take Jesus seriously. For them, religion is a game and this leader is a joke to be played with. And their mockery and belittling of Jesus reveal much like what our world thinks of it. 
And the Jewish leader, although sometimes are more civil than the soldiers, their view of Jesus is just as negative. He's someone whose presence and visibility needs to be removed. He's a threat and a nuisance, not a king or savior. Jesus has been predicting this all along. This is not new to him. He is carrying out his father's plans. One commentator said, how ironic that the trial of Jesus is really our trial. For what we think of it reveals what we think of him. He is really the judge. In a theological sense, Jesus is on trial for us. He stands where we ought to be standing. Without our sin, he would not have been there. This is one of the most timeless messages in the Bible. How will we respond to the Son of Man who's now seated at the right hand of the Father, who took our place at these trials? A couple things we can learn from this passage. First, how small and gradual are the steps by which men may go down into greater sins. The various steps in how Peter fell here are clearly marked out by the gospel writers, and we need to observe this and really pay attention. Here's five things that Ryle points out took place in the sequence that led to this. The first step was proud self-confidence. Though all, all denied Christ, yet Peter never would. He was ready to go with him both to prison and to death. Proud self-confidence. The second step, neglect of prayer. When his master told him to pray lest he should enter into temptation, Instead, he fell to drowsiness and was found asleep. The third step was indecision, vacillating on things. When the enemies of Christ came upon him, Peter first fought, then ran away, then turned again, and finally followed afar off. The fourth step, mingling with bad company. He went into the high priest's house, sat among the servants by the fire, trying to conceal his religion and hearing and seeing all kinds of evil. And then the fifth and last step, the consequence of the preceding four, he was overwhelmed with fear when suddenly confronted about who he was in his relationship to the Savior. And now the snare was around his neck and it was too late. He couldn't escape. He plunged deeper into error than ever, and he denied his blessed master three times. We never know what we might come to when we leave what you might call the king's highway. A Christian who begins to say of any sin or evil habit, eh, it's about a little one, is in imminent danger. He's sowing seeds in his heart which will one day spring up and bear bitter fruit. A Christian who keeps his heart diligently in little things will be kept from great falls. The second thing, 
The story of Peter's fall teaches us how very far a true believer can backslide. All the circumstances of Peter's case should be fully weighed. Think of it. He was a chosen apostle of Christ. He had enjoyed many and great spiritual privileges. He had just received the Lord's Supper. He had just heard that wonderful discourse recorded in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John. He had been most plainly warned of his own danger. He had boasted most loudly that he was ready for anything that might come upon him. And yet this very man denies his gracious master and repeatedly. And even after intervals of time giving him space for reflection. When we read about this stuff in scripture, it's very real. When we read about the falls of Noah and Lot and Peter, we're only reading what might possibly befall any one of us. Don't ever presume. Let us never indulge, if you will, in high thoughts about our own strength and look down on others. We should pray, just like it says in Micah, walk humbly with God. The third thing that it teaches us is the infinite mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, to me, is the key part of the whole passage. This is what I want you to walk away with today. It's a lesson which brings out most forcibly a fact which is only recorded in Luke's gospel. When we're told that when Peter denied Christ the third time, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. These words are really deeply touching. Think about it. Jesus is surrounded by bloodthirsty and insulting enemies, anticipating really horrible things, an unjust trial and an agonizing self-atoning death. Yet, the Lord Jesus found time to think kindly of his poor, erring disciple, even though he would have Peter know that he did not forget him. Sorrowful, no doubt, but not angry, he turned and looked straight at Peter. There was a deep meaning in that look. It was a sermon which Peter never forgot. A sermon without words. We need to know the same kind of love that we see Jesus there. It's a love for us. The love of Christ towards us, his people, is deep. Some would say it's a well which has no bottom. Don't measure it by comparing it with some kind of human love. It exceeds all that. Don't forget and don't be afraid to trust that love. Let us never be afraid to go on trusting it after once we have believed. 
if the heart of Jesus was so gracious when he was a prisoner in the judgment hall, then surely we need not think he's less gracious when he sits on glory at the right hand of God. As we get ready for communion, consider what took place here. What might we say about the encouragements that the crowing of the cock gave to the Apostle Peter? Three things. And these same three things, I think, are appropriate for us too. First, it was an assurance to him that Jesus Christ was still in control of things even though he was a prisoner, bound, seemingly helpless, Peter could recall witnessing all the authority Jesus demonstrated over fish and winds and waves and even over disease and death. No matter how dark the hour was for Peter, Jesus was still in control. The same is true with us no matter how dark the hour may be. Second, the crowing of the cock assured Peter he could be forgiven. Peter had not been paying close attention to the word of God. He argued with it, disobeyed it, even ran ahead of it. But now he remembered the word of the Lord. And this brought him hope. Why? Because with that warning, was also a promise of restoration. If you remember back to James' sermon, Peter would be forgiven and restored. And when that happened, he would go strengthen his brothers. And finally, the crowing of the cock told Peter that a new day was dawning. Broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. On resurrection morning, an angel sent a special message to encourage Peter, and the Lord himself appeared to Peter that day and restored him to fellowship. Each one of us, at one time or another, we're going to fail the Lord. Most likely, we already have. Satan will tell us we're finished, our future has been destroyed, but that's not the message God has for us. It wasn't the end for Peter. His restoration was so complete, he was able to say to the Jews some days later, after the resurrection and after the ascension, he looks at his fellow Jews and he says, you denied the Holy One and the just. We have 1 John 1, 9. He didn't have it, but he knew it. If we confess our sins, Jesus is going to forgive us and cleanse us.
And that's the message that we need to remember when we come to communion.